In this next hour, we hear about fair voting maps from the view of Gill versus Whitford, the Wisconsin gerrymandering case that is now in front of the U.S. Supreme Court. We'll hear about how it began, developed, and its current status. Our guest speaker is William Whitford, Professor Emeritus at the UW Law School. The talk took place on April 11, 2018, at the Capitol Lakes Retirement Community in Madison and was sponsored by the League of Women Voters of Dane County. There are study materials and handouts with maps at the League's website at lwvdanecounty.org. But first, we hear from Ingrid Roth, Vice President of the League, who introduces Professor Whitford. Professor Whitford has had and continues to have a very distinguished career in the law. He joined the UW Law School faculty in 1965 and now has an emeritus after his name. Uh, And he's taught a wide range of business law subjects and lately focusing chiefly in the contracts area. And his research interests have included contracts, bankruptcy, consumer protection, and taxation. Professor Whitford also taught several years in East Africa and uh, maintains an active interest in that part of the world. But we invited him here tonight to hear from him about fair voting maps because he is the named plaintiff in the case Gil v. Whitford, a case of great interest to the League of Women Voters. The LWV of the United States uh, filed an amicus brief in support of Whitford. Uh, the title of this talk is Gil v. Whitford, The Gerrymandering Case, How It Began, Developed, and Its Current Status. So please join me in welcoming Professor Whitford. Uh, thank you very much, Ingrid. Thank you for having me. Thanks so many people for coming. Uh, I'm going to begin with just a little lesson, uh, kind of political science, how partisan gerrymandering is done. There's only two tricks, basically, to creating a partisan gerrymander, and they are called packing and cracking. And those sound like slang terms, but they've become technical terms. They're written in fancy political science articles in the most Prestigious journals are used in Supreme Court opinions and so forth. Uh, Packing is the technique. Uh, To understand the concept, you have to assume a two-party system, one party in control, seeking to disadvantage the other. Uh, I'm not trying to be partisan, although I am a partisan, but we're talking about Wisconsin, where the Republicans drafted this apportionment and they've sought to disadvantage the Democrats. So just... For clarity, I'm going to talk about Republicans and Democrats, uh, but not so much to be partisan, just to illustrate. So the idea of packing, if it's a Republican gerrymander, is to take as many Democrats as possible and put them in supermajority Democratic districts. That's packing. Cracking is the technique of taking the, the rest of the plaintiffs, I mean, sorry, the rest of the Democrats, and spreading them out so that they can't be a majority, or even quite close enough to a majority, because the idea is to have safe Republican seats, not competitive seats, uh, spreading them out kind of evenly. The basic idea is to waste as many votes as Democratic votes as possible, because 
all the Democrats in crack districts where they don't really have a chance to win, their votes aren't going to create seats in the legislature for the Democrats. In the PAC districts, all the Democratic votes above 50% are, in a sense, wasted. They are, they already got the seat. They're not going to contribute to other seats. That's the idea. Uh, a sign of a partisan gerrymander is where the disadvantage, the percentage, if you look at election results, this is what was called in, by one expert the fingerprint of a partisan gerrymander. If you look at election results, what you'll find, if you look at all the seats that where there's a race, a lot of these are uncontested, but where there's a race that one party won by, say, 70% or more of the vote, they'll, the vast majority of the seats in those districts will have been won by the disadvantaged party, Democrats in Wisconsin. And if you look at the seats that have been won with 55 to 60% of the vote, the vast majority of those will be won by the party sought to be advantaged by the gerrymander, Republicans here in Wisconsin. So the way it works, it's a, you don't have to be a math genius. You take a state like Wisconsin, it's basically a 50-50 state, leaving aside the recent Supreme Court race, uh, a margin of 52 to 48 is a very comfortable win in a statewide race in Wisconsin. Uh, so if you have basically a 50-50 state, but one party's winning their seats by 70% and up, and the other party's winning their seats by 55 to 60, you can figure out that when it comes to seats in the legislature, the party that's winning their seats by 55 to 60 is going to have more seats in the end in the legislature. That's the idea of a partisan gerrymander. I have illustrated it here on the map. Uh, this is west side of Milwaukee and uh, eastern side of Waukesha County, basically, and then down below Racine and Kenosha County. In the earlier map, that area of Milwaukee and Waukesha gets the western side of Milwaukee, like West Dallas, Watotosa, and going west into Waukesha. That had four Democratic seats and four Republican seats. The map that we're dealing with now same area basically has two Democratic seats and six Republican seats. And how did they accomplish that? This is the example of cracking. Uh, those uh, districts, they're all rectangular going east and west. And what they do is they pick up a bunch of Democratic areas in Milwaukee County to the east, and they just go far enough west into Waukesha and Washington County so they're roughly... 60-40 districts. That's cracking. And that's how it was accomplished. So that in that area, they converted a 4-4 to a 6-2. This, this went on all over the state. So this is just an example. Uh, very skillful a partisan gerrymander. Uh, in the old uh, map, basically the same area, four Democratic seats, two Republican seats. In the current map, three Democratic seats, three Republican seats. It's done by packing, by pouring as much Democrats as possible into the three Democratic seats, which are downtown Racine, downtown Kenosha, and along the coast there in between, and then cracking the rest. Like, it's got that little finger that comes down south. That's right into the city of Racine. So they took part of the city of Racine and put it in the district, but then went far enough west that it's a cracked district. But mainly that, that map illustrates packing. Let me uh, 
just give you a couple other datums about the current apportionment that illustrates the partisan gerrymander. The first uh, election in which the uh, map was effective was the 2012 election. Actually, a pretty good year for Democrats statewide. Tammy Baldwin beat Tommy Thompson. Uh, Barack Obama won the, the statewide vote handily. Democrats got something like 51.6% of the statewide vote for assembly candidates. They got 39 out of 99 seats in the assembly, which was exactly what the pros predicted based on the apportionment. With very little prospects for improvement, and there are very few swing seats because that's illustrated by 2014 election, which was a reasonably good election for Republicans. Walker won re-election uh, statewide. Uh, the Republicans took about 51.5% of the statewide vote for the assembly seats. They picked up three seats, even though there was what was for Wisconsin a fairly dramatic shift uh, in the statewide vote. There just weren't very many competitive seats is what it amounts to under this apportionment. Uh, so this is uh, Wisconsin. Uh, gerrymandering is a national problem. Uh, Democrats do it as well. Uh, it's a kind of a sin of opportunity. Uh, just happened that after the 2010 Republican wave, Republicans had many more opportunities because there were many more. Gerry partisan gerrymandering is likely to happen in a state, almost always happens in a state, where the three key institutions, the state assembly, the state senate, whatever they're called in that state, they're different names, lower house, upper house, and the governorship are all in, the same, in control of the same party, what we call single party control. And that was much more, there were many more Republicans that had many more opportunities. Uh, one of the experts in our, in our case testified that uh, in the last decade, uh, we see many, he went back and looked at redistricting schemes back into the 70s, over about 40 states. The vast majority of extreme partisan gerrymanders are in, in place right now, in the current decade. That's partly because of this opportunity, but it also illustrates something else. With computer software, and all these maps are now created with computer software, it's just much easier to fine-tune a gerrymander and keep the populations of the districts equal, which is a constitutional requirement. So it's easier to do. And the, the general feeling is that, uh, this is widespread feeling in, amongst the political scientists, that if the Supreme Court doesn't uh, step in and put some brakes on this process, or if somehow the populist grassroots does, rises up and insists that there be some breaks in the next round of apportionments, which will be after the next census, they'll be in 2021, it'll be open season, and it'll be... We'll see, maybe even worse, or more extreme, I guess I should use a non-pejorative term. Now, what are the consequences of partisan gerrymandering? That's the last thing I'll say, and then I'll get into how our case got started. Well, in a state like Wisconsin, which is not atypical in this way, the state legislature is ordered, organized in caucuses, and the first votes take place in caucus, and once uh, a caucus is adopted, the party caucuses, of course, once a party caucus has adopted a position, there's an expectation of loyalty for all members of that party. So that a Republican will vote against the majority Republican position, usually only with the permission of the leader 
the speaker of the assembly in this case, which will happen if the person has some reason to want to vote that way and the speaker doesn't need the vote. <laughs> so the consequence of a partisan gerrymandering is to have because very few bipartisan bills that are put through is but what it amounts to. And the uh, consequences is to leave the majority caucus to be effective legislature. And the general elections don't really matter very much in the way we think of elections as holding legislators accountable. There are very few swing seats. Uh, Republicans don't really have to worry about losing a majority under this apportionment. The key elections are the primaries in the majority party. They're the key elections, and the only elections that really affect, or at least the elections that most obviously affect, most substantially affect legislative output. And when that happens, and this I think is what most all political scientists agree, you're going to find a lot of legislation that's designed to appeal to the majority party's base, and hence look at the attitudes of the legislature on gun control. Look at the attitudes about mining regulation in Wisconsin. Uh, you know, essentially uh, using the state power to, to deprive localities of the ability to regulate mining regulation uh, environmentally. Or the one I like to use, uh, it's not, not hugely important, but in Wisconsin in the last budget, uh, we raised, we, we have this problem with funding roads, we raised car registration fees but only for hybrid and electric cars. <laughs> now, only a gerrymandered legislature would raise car registration only for hybrid and electric cars because guess what? The owners of hybrid and electric cars are pretty P.O.'d, pardon my language. And uh, if Republicans thought they were losing votes that mattered, they would never do that. The product of the gerrymander. Okay, so here's, that's enough of that. You're listening to Professor William Whitford from the UW Law School. He's speaking on the Wisconsin gerrymandering case, Gill versus Whitford, on how it began, developed, and its current status. The case is now in front of the U.S. Supreme Court, awaiting decision. Now I'll come to the Wisconsin and how the case got started. Uh, the case got started, the timeline suggests, uh, in the summer of 2013. That, the case wasn't filed until the summer of 2015, but the origin really starts in the summer of 2013. When a small group of activists, I got invited to join in Milwaukee. Uh, really about six people were key. And uh, we met at a place that some of you may know called the Watts Tea Room. No longer in existence, but it, was a ni- it, did, it didn't have a lot of business even then, so it was nice to meet. You could meet at 9.30 in the morning and nobody was listening to what you were saying. Uh, and, uh, and they didn't care how long you stayed. Cause it was, um, but uh, So that's why we call ourselves the Watts Tea Room Group, not to, to be distinguished from the Tea Party Group. And basically the problem was this. We're mostly lawyers, but we're all Democratic Party activists. What the heck are we going to do? I mean, I'll tell you, there'd been an earlier case uh, right after this apportionment was filed, uh, filed in the Milwaukee Federal Court, challenging its constitutionality. In that case, they were very careful 
the, lawyer, the plaintiffs not to bring the partisan gerrymandering claim. There had been no precedent for it, and I'll get into that. They challenged it on other grounds, and they basically lost. So we knew that that case had been lost, and then we had the 2012 elections, which for, in terms of the state legislature was a disaster for the Democrats. What the heck were we going to do about the situation? And uh, we... Uh, we basically decided, we read some, we were lawyers, we read some of the Supreme Court cases. There have been some other efforts to try to get the Supreme Court to rein in partisan gerrymandering going back to the 80s. We read the precedents. We decided, yeah, lots of people had, we weren't kind of original legal thinkers here, that maybe Justice Anthony Kennedy's vote could be gotten based on the opinions he'd written earlier. If you had the right kind of fact situation, the right uh, very convincing situation that you were dealing with a gerrymander that was extreme and was likely to last, not just one election phenomenon, we thought we had some pretty good facts in Wisconsin. And we had even because of that election result and so forth, and uh, we had one other thing. In that earlier case that I mentioned, that was called the Baldus case that was filed in Milwaukee, there was a lot of squabbling that went on between the plaintiff's lawyers and uh, the state lawyers trying to get information about how this apportionment was drafted, the records, the emails, the drafts. And the reason there was a lot of squabbling is this was very unusual legislation. Some of you may remember this from the time. It didn't go through the ordinary legislative committee process. What the Republicans did as soon as they came into power in January 2011 was to hire a law firm, Michael Best and Friedrich, just across in the Glass Bank building over here, take the two key legislative aides uh, the, to the Speaker and the Majority Leader, Scott Fitzgerald, and the State Senate, have them take leave and become employees of the law firm, plus another former assemblyman named Joe Hendrick and put him in a locked room called the map room with access only with the permission of a partner, at, at, a law partner at Michael Best and Friedrich. Very secretive. And in fact, uh, even the back, backbencher Republican legislators were not allowed in there to see what was going on, except with respect to their district only, but not the whole map. Uh, until it was revealed and then enacted eight days later. And when it came to the court case and the plaintiffs tried to get the records, the state claimed, well, it's all lawyer-client privilege. This is the work product of some assistance to the lawyers. It's protected by what lawyers call lawyer-client privilege, and it's not ordinary legislative committee work product. Well, that court blew right through that charade. Well, I call it a charade. I don't think they did. Uh, I mean, the court might have, but I don't think the people who set it up, and ordered a lot of it to be disclosed. But it was discovered, and it's kind of a fun story about how, for those of you who remember the recall movements and the demonstrations around the square, they played a role. But it was discovered later, after the court had ruled against the plaintiffs, that they had not turned over everything that they were supposed to by the court orders. So the plaintiff's lawyers, one of whom was meeting with us in the T group, 
group, the tea room group, went back to that court and said, look at your honor. The court was already a little bit annoyed at the state's lawyers because they really had fought hard to not disclose this stuff. They ignored court orders. They didn't reveal everything. And the court, in, in kind of a, a bit of peak fit, maybe, ordered that the hard drives of the three computers that were used by the two legislative aides and Joe Hendricks to draft this map be turned over to the plaintiffs so they could take images, which happened. And it turned out that some of the key documents uh, in those hard drives have been erased. I don't know why. I don't know if they were erased before or after the order to turn them over, but they weren't erased effectively. They didn't use the same people Hillary used when she erased her hard drives. <laughs> and we were able to recover those documents. And we knew in the Watts Tea Room we had those. And that was another thing that we thought made us have an attractive case because we had really some smoking gun evidence about how this apportionment was put together. We could prove that the intent was, really beyond a reasonable doubt, the intent was to create as pro-Republican a map as you could possibly do given Wisconsin's basic political geography. And you could show that because what they had, those drafters did is they kept trying to fiddle with the lines and then they had a way of projecting what the outcomes of the races would be with any kind of draft based on uh, some data about the basic uh, partisan nature of basically every voting ward in Wisconsin drawn from previous elections. That Those predictions proved to be very accurate. And they, did, they took one and they projected what the result would be if there was uh, 48 0.6%. Republicans got 48.6% of the vote. I mean, they always showed a majority of Republican seats, even though they had a minority of the vote. But then they fiddled with the lines some more, and if they got a higher number, they threw the earlier one out. And they just kept doing it until they got stuck at 59. That way they couldn't figure out a way to go above 59 with 48.6% of the vote. And that's about what they got in the 2012 election, and they got 60. So they were a little off, but their projections were pretty accurate. But we could prove all that and did in court. So we had that. So then the next step was to find lawyers. Now, we needed to find lawyers who would take the case for what we were prepared to pay them, which was nothing. <laughs> and everybody knew... We were going to bring just the partisan gerrymandering claim not, and not other claims about this apportionment because the other claims had all been tried in that earlier case. There's no sense in relitigating them. It's just a single-issue case on partisan gerrymandering. And everybody knew that we could only win by getting to the U.S. Supreme Court because if we won at the trial court, which we did ultimately, it would be the first time in history that a federal court had struck down a state legislative apportionment as unconstitutional because of excessive partisan gerrymandering. And the state would surely appeal, and the Supreme Court would surely hear the case because it's the first time in history, which is exactly what happened. So we were looking for lawyers, asking them out of the goodness of their heart or for the sake of the cause <clears throat> to take make quite a huge commitment to take a case all the way to the Supreme Court and make no precedent. And our first asks, we struck out on. 
And then uh, we had what was perhaps the key stroke of luck uh, in this kind of odyssey I've been on. I got a call from a law professor uh, at New York University who's an expert in this area, who I'd consulted with about our endeavors. And he said, I got this article. He actually sent it. He didn't call me. He sent this draft article by a young law professor at the University of Chicago, whose name is Nick Stephanopoulos, and I'll say, use his name quite a bit. Uh, a draft law review article, because law professors, when they're writing, and the, Nick was untenured, young, new, new to the business, but professors will, this happens not just in law and all kinds of fields, they'll send the drafts around to experts in the area for comments and suggestions before they submit it for publication. And it was at that stage. But this expert at NYU said, well, this article might be helpful to you. And I looked at it. It had a vision of Justice Kennedy's kind of jurisprudence that was similar to ours, what it might take to appeal to him. It had a kind of uh, proposed a task called the efficiency gap for how you might measure uh, how partisan a gerrymander is. Essentially a test that would allow you to rank all the legislative apportionments from lowest efficiency gap to highest efficiency gap. It's a pretty mechanical, mathematical test. Anybody could do it. Every, it wasn't something in the eye of the beholder. It was a mechanical, quantitative test. And it had all kinds of information about Wisconsin, because to Nick, Wisconsin was, well, at that time, he thought the worst gerrymander in the country. He since massaged his data a little bit, and I think we come in number two or three. So I cold-called Nick. I didn't know, of course, uh, nor did he know me. But I said, what we were doing, would you be interested? This sounds like it could be a marriage. And he was very interested. He knew all about Wisconsin. I didn't have to explain that. And I asked if he'd come up to Watts Tea Room and meet with the gang. And he was quite interested. And he said, oh, by the way, I have this girlfriend. Girlfriend's now his wife. Uh, she's the incoming voting rights director of the Chicago Committee for Civil Rights Under Law. Can I bring her along? And she's very interested in redistricting. Can I bring her along? Her name is Ruth Greenwood. And uh, long story short, Ruth was able to convince the Chicago Lawyers Committee for Civil Rights Under Law to undertake our case. Ruth signed on, I mean, Nick signed on as a lawyer. They brought in another partner from Chicago. Ruth had a young assistant who was just pretty much out of law school. The Chicago Lawyers Committee signing was so key because for a big case like this, even though we weren't going to pay the lawyers, you got to have an office, you got to have somebody who can raise money to cover expenses, including experts, which are quite expensive, and, uh, and, and just basically provide the infrastructure of what amounted to, I like to call it, uh, chewing gum and string law firm. I mean, it wasn't really a law firm. It was a lawyer here, a lawyer there. The, the one lawyer from the earlier case who was part of the Watts Tea Room group who had the hard drives, he joined the team. Uh, so that's how we started. And now we're up to the summer of 2014. <laughs> took that long to put all this together, and then they had to hire experts, uh, get some expert reports, their fancy political science. So we hired Ken Meyer, who 
uh, had testified in earlier Wisconsin cases. He's a professor in the political science department here, and then uh, a, a kind of political science statistician from Stanford named Simon Jackman. And they had to get their reports and then think about what kind of legal arguments to make in the complaint. And all that took another year. So it's summer 2015 before the complaint is filed. So it's filed here in Madison. Now, uh, in the federal court. Uh, now, redistricting cases, because of a federal statute that goes back to the 60s, basically, Redistricting cases in the federal court, that is to say, a challenge to the constitutionality of either a, a legislative or congressional apportionment, but ours was just the legislative, our case, not the congressional, uh, gets a special procedure, and that procedure involves the creation of a three-judge district of court appointed by the chief judge of the head of the Court of Appeals in whose district we are, called the Seventh Circuit. You lawyers know what that means. That, that judge sits in Milwaukee, in Chicago. And then there's direct appeal from the three-judge court to the Supreme Court. It's a special procedure for redistricting cases. Of course, it's designed to keep one judge. Uh, the, the idea is that you don't want any one judge invalidating a legislative or congressional apportionment. It has to be a majority of three court at the trial level. But then... You, you bypass a step by being able to go straight to the Supreme Court. So the next thing was September, next event to note is September 2015 when our, court, our trial court was constituted, and it had two Republican judges, uh, Republican, appointed by Republican presidents. I have no idea, of course, whether the party affiliation of the judges. But we, Barbara Crabb from the local court here, was appointed by Jimmy Carter, was one of the judges. But then Keith Ripple was appointed by Reagan, sits on the Seventh Circuit, he's from South Bend. And then uh, William Griesbach was appointed by the second Bush, he sits in Green Bay. Uh, that was the panel. You're listening to Professor William Whitford from the UW Law School. He's speaking on the Wisconsin gerrymandering case, Gill versus Whitford, on how it began, developed, and its current status. The case is now in front of the U.S. Supreme Court awaiting decision. And uh, the state immediately filed a motion to dismiss. Uh, for the lawyers, a motion to dismiss for failure to state a claim upon which relief can be granted. And their argument is basically, look it, there have been a lot of these partisan gerrymander cases. I know some of them came close in the Supreme Court, but nobody's ever won. Just throw it out. It's a waste of time. <laughs> No precedent to support the action. And that was argued, and the appellate lawyer from Chicago came up and did a wonderful argument. Nick wrote a wonderful brief. Well, all the lawyers participated in the brief, but Stephanopoulos is perhaps the principal brief writer. And uh, in December 2015, I didn't put that data on my timeline, but the, tr the court unanimously rules in our favor. Unanimously. They read the opinions that, well, gee... Justice Kennedy has indicated that with the right facts, he might be open to this. Uh, some of the liberals in Supreme Court hadn't voted on one of these cases. Kagan and Sotomayor have not yet voted. Breyer and Ginsburg are already on record as being open to the argument. Uh, if you look at the complaint and the expert reports, gosh, this just might be the case that Kennedy would go for. That's essentially what they say. 
So we'll have a trial. So we knew then we'd have a trial, which happened in May 2016. The other thing that happened with that is that we began to get more national attention as a case that just might get Supreme Court and might do what we set out to do. More national attention. And that led to what became a significant happening. Uh, there's a public interest law firm in, in uh, the District of Columbia called the Campaign Legal Center. It is probably the prominent, most prominent, it's a fairly large organization, it's bipartisan, the president of the chair of the board of directors is Trevor Potter, is a liberal Republican, if there is such a thing, but, uh, and, uh, it, you know, it has both sides, and they're very proud of that, very careful of that. They expressed an interest in coming into the case, and we were glad to have them. They even hired Ruth Greenwood and her assistant away from the Chicago Lawyers Committee for Civil Rights and set them up as a special Chicago office of the Campaign Legal Center. It still just has two lawyers, Ruth Greenwood and, and, and Annabelle, her assistant, but Ruth was at that time uh, engaged and soon to be married to Nick, and she wasn't going to move to uh, D.C. just to make some new law. So, uh, so the Chicago Lawyers Committee drops out at that point, and the Campaign Legal Center comes abroad, and they bring a lot of legal talent, played some role in the trial, and really carried the ball at the Supreme Court level. So that was a significant development. And there was another young lawyer here, well, not, well young by my standards, lawyer here in Madison, some of you may know, Doug Poland, who'd been in the early, on the earlier case, but his law firm wouldn't let him volunteer for our case, so he switched law firms and quickly joined our legal team. Well, joined our legal team quickly after switching law firms and was part of the legal team for trial, played a big role in the trial. He's an excellent trial attorney. So uh, that gets us up to the trial. Uh, oh, I didn't talk about finding plaintiffs once we had a legal team. Uh, of the Watts Tea Room group, I was the only one uh, who could be a plaintiff for a variety of reasons. I'd have to go down each of the other people as to why they weren't appropriate. One of them, of course, was one of the lawyers, and you can't be both a lawyer and a plaintiff. The other plaintiffs, we got 12 altogether, basically uh, people from the Watts Tea Room group called friends of friends around the states. We were all Democratic, Wisconsin Democratic Party activists and put together a team of plaintiffs all willing to be identified as Democratic activists scattered around the state. The idea was geographic dispersion. So uh, that's how that happened. So the trial happened. It's a four-day trial. It's a big deal over here in the federal courthouse. Big deal for me, anyhow. I felt the trial was... Uh, Resource-wise, very one-sided. Uh, the state had uh, a fine guy, uh, an assistant attorney general, uh, handling the case for them, and he had a young assistant. And uh, these days, you have to have a tech guy at trial because there's just so much PowerPoint and video and stuff that goes on in the courtroom. It's well beyond me. Uh, so they had a tech person. Both sides had their tech people. We had seven lawyers. Some people came in from D.C., Stephanopoulos, two excellent trial attorneys, both Wisconsin trial attorneys. Uh, Peter Earl, who was part of the Watts Tea Room Group, Doug Poland, uh, some trial attorneys from D.C. We had seven lawyers. And we, uh, our, both sides had two experts, but our experts were both full professors, 
the guy from Stanford was a member of the American Academy of Sciences. They were credentialed, just dripping with credentials. <laughs> the states were more modest, to say the least, uh, enough so that one of the state's experts, and this is a telling a story out of tale, but he saddled up in the brakes to this professor from Stanford. He was just trying to kind of be sure the professor of Stanford knew who he was. Uh... So it seemed very one-sided to me. Now, I say that's about the three judges. Of course, we were uphill in a way, but the three judges paid tremendous attention. <clears throat> they were prepared. It was four days, long days. They listened to everything. They were very careful about the record. Chief, judge Ripple was kind of the chief judge of the trial court. Uh, made comments to the fact we're preparing a record for the Supreme Court and all this sort of stuff because everybody thought the case could go to the Supreme Court. And uh, nothing but respect for their preparation and paying attention. And then the trial ended, and we waited. And we waited. It's what I call the first long wait. We're in the middle of the second long wait now. And the decision didn't come down until November 20th, 2016. We can only speculate as to what the reasons were for the long wait. Certainly one speculation is that they didn't want to issue the opinion before the election, uh, on the other hand, when it came down and we won two to one, Judge Griesbach dissented. Judge Ripple wrote a 120-page opinion. It's an excellent opinion. It's not a quick study. It's not a quick read. But he dotted all the I's, crossed all the T's, listed all the arguments. So it took a long time to write that opinion. So that perhaps was the reason. But when we won two to one... That pretty much, as I said, assured that we would get to the Supreme Court, which was the original idea. It took a while uh, to kind of uh, finalize that because everything moved slow at the Supreme Court, but by, and there's briefings and this and that, but by June 2016, the court did formally take the appeal, uh, June 2017, and... Uh, sets the argument for the first week of October, and the argument happened October 3rd, 2017. Now, the, the, the oral argument gets, and now we're in the second long wait, uh, the argument gets a lot of attention, and uh, in the newspaper, in the media, it's a big media frenzy down there, and blowout, there's documentary films being made, there's filmmakers everywhere. Uh, but probably more significant, legally, is the briefing period that took place between the formal taking of the case in June and the argument. Not only did both sides file their briefs and they're really worked on very hard, but there's this process of filing amicus briefs. Uh, and uh, I think Ingrid mentioned that the League filed one on our side there were over 55 amicus briefs filed in the case, many of them excellent, including the leagues. The majority on our side, uh, I'm proud to say that there were groups of academics, law academics, political science academics, political geography academics, historians, uh, that filed briefs. I don't remember how many academic briefs. There were some just by single people, single academics, but let's say there were 10 academic briefs. That's probably a ballpark number. They were all on our side. I'm proud of that. 
Uh, and at oral argument, you all know that uh, you, you go into the Supreme Court, it's just a half hour aside. All this preparation, <laughs> each side gets one half hour. It took four days for the trial, but half hour to aside, an hour altogether. It seems a little ridiculous, but I'll say this. Uh, the justices are extremely prepared, and as you all have heard, the lawyers come in, and they get two sentences out, and then the questions start. And the questions are not spontaneous. The justices come in prepared. They've read the briefs. The questions will refer to the amicus brief of so-and-so. Uh, of course, they got a lot of clerks. It doesn't mean that the justices themselves have necessarily read all these amicus briefs. It could be a clerk that's written and written a memo about it. But the questions are prepared. They're sophisticated. And that's mostly what an oral argument consists of, is answering the judge's questions, justices' questions. And then afterwards, you come out, and there's a bevy of TV cameras and so forth. Uh, uh, I can tell a couple other Supreme Court stories, but I want to save some time to talk about what's happened since the oral argument. Uh, one of the amicus briefs that was filed, oh, I learned, these are all things I learned. I mean, once we got Supreme Court, the Campaign Legal Center hired media consultants, professional media consultants, a part of a case, a law case. Uh, I had no idea. Uh, but the media consultants were, would advise us as media approach and want to interview the plaintiffs or the lawyers. Or, and they, they just play a policeman role a little bit, you know, just so you coordinate activities by the media. But uh, one of their charges was to try to get as much Republican support on our side uh, as possible because it was thought that, particularly for Justice Kennedy, but maybe other justices' votes, that the more that could be shown that there was bipartisan support, you know, that would be helpful. And there were two amicus briefs filed that I want to mention in particular. When this was drafted, this apportionment, uh, there were two professors of political science, one from Irvine, Cal University of California, Irvine, one from Oklahoma, who consulted on the Republican side. And indeed, they consult around the country, especially the one from Oklahoma on the Republican side. Uh, and uh, they, one was a, they were both witnesses in the first case, the Baldus case, and the Oklahoma guy was a witness in our case uh, at trial. They got together and filed a joint brief which said, we're not going to comment whether the Wisconsin apportionment was constitutional. After all, we helped create it. But we do think it's time for the Supreme Court to step up and put some limits on partisan gerrymandering because it's getting bad and it's only going to get worse. So that was fairly significant because these are the two political science academics who had been consulting with the Republicans on the drafting of this. You're listening to Professor William Whitford from the UW Law School. He's speaking on the Wisconsin gerrymandering case, Gill versus Whitford, on how it began, developed, and its current status. The case is now in front of the U.S. Supreme Court, awaiting decision. And the other one I want to mention was put together, uh, it was a group of, uh, I've forgotten how many, but I'll say about 13, uh, mostly ex-Republican, uh, statewide Republican officials, senators and governors. They had been elected statewide. The significance of that is you can't gerrymander state lines. So they were not beneficiaries of gerrymanders or, or victims. The only current office holder was John Kasich, 
uh, but Bob Dole signed it, for example, and there were a number of other names, Alan Simpson, other names that you would remember. And the key one I want to mention is Arnold Schwarzenegger. Uh, Arnold is a big supporter of gerrymandering reform. I mean, he was a Republican governor of California where he had to deal with a Democratic gerrymander all his time he was a governor. So he's a big supporter. And I had the good fortune, by coincidence, I was seated in the Supreme Court chamber waiting for oral argument, and in comes the head media consultant with Arnold Schwarzenegger in tow and sits right down next to me. That was just a coincidence. But I had a 20-minute conversation with my new best friend forever, Arnold Schwarzenegger. Uh, and then as soon as the argument's over, he runs out on the, the steps, and, of course, he wants to get in front of the cameras. He's pretty good at it. Uh, so we're glad to have him there. Uh, he says... Hasta la vista, gerrymandering, uh, for the cameras. Um, so that's my stories. Uh, now, where are we now and what uh, to expect going forward? There's some litigation going on on partisan gerrymandering in other states, and the most significant case is out of Maryland, uh, where it's a Democratic gerrymander, Republicans are victims, there's a case involving their congressional seat, really just one congressional seat in uh, Maryland where the Democrats jiggered the lines and converted a Republican seat to a Democratic seat. Maryland was, uh, before the current gerrymander, it's an eight, eight, have eight congressional districts, six Democrat, two Republican. As a result of the gerrymander, there are now seven Democrats, one Republican. And there was a suit poking along, and I won't go into all the details, but uh, the, uh, it was behind our case in progression, and uh, we thought that the Supreme Court, and so did the trial court, I might say, in the Maryland case, uh, they would just decide our case and then see what the implications of that were for the Maryland case before looking at the Maryland case. But quite by surprise, and I won't go into all the legal weeds about it, but quite by surprise, in December, the Supreme Court grabs the Maryland case and takes it and schedules argument. It was a week ago today. It was certainly a surprise to me. Uh, but the effect of that order was probably, we felt, to delay the decision in our case because they would decide the two cases together. They're both partisan gerrymandering games. Now that case has been orally argued, so... Uh, in a sense, the cases are ripe for decision, but they have to write the opinions. Uh, expect our case to be decided sometime between now and the end of June. The opinions are announced on Mondays. So, you know, on Monday morning, I'm listening to the news, uh, checking websites to see what happened. The, there are some other cases around, but none of them are quite at the Supreme Court level. There's a couple of cases in North Carolina, one congressional and one uh, legislative. You can ask me about them if you want. The one that people ask about is the Pennsylvania case. But the Pennsylvania case is different because the challenge there was under the Pennsylvania Constitution, not the U.S. Constitution. And the Pennsylvania Supreme Court was the supreme authority. They have ruled it unconstitutional. They've ordered a remedy, a new map for 2018. And it's pretty much a done deal. Now, what to look for when the decision comes down. 
couple things. I mean, we in Wisconsin will be concerned about the timing and what the court says about the possible availability of a remedy for the 2018 elections. It's taken so long that I'm less encouraged that than I once was that, he, that if we win, we'll get a new redistricting in time for the 2018 elections. But we haven't given up. That's one thing to look for. Another thing to look for is something about, of course, who wins, uh, but something about the legal theory. Because the Maryland plaintiffs have a very, we were Republicans, have a very different theory than we do. Our theory is premised, and the data I started off the talk with is dated on what we call a statewide analysis. It looks like I told you what the statewide vote was, Republican, Democrat, and what the allocation of seats in the legislature is. And it doesn't our analysis doesn't require an exact proportionality, but there has to be some uh, correlation there. And I feel, at least, that you know, majority rule is kind of a fundamental principle. And uh, I don't mean to say that if the Democrats get 50.05% of the statewide vote, they have to get a majority of the seats. But in a state like Wisconsin, you get 51.5% of the statewide vote. That's a pretty comfortable margin. You better get the majority of the seats. That's just majority rule. That's our argument. The, the Maryland case says, no, you have to analyze partisan gerrymandering on a district-by-district -district basis. You can do that with congressional districts because there aren't so many. And you look at how the lines were drawn, and the focus of the trial is not on this kind of proportionality between the statewide vote and the number of seats. It's on why did they draw the line here rather than there? Was their was their motivation strictly partisan? Uh, was there any other justification for it? And each district gets analyzed. Uh, now if the court could buy both theories, right? They could buy a theory that a district-by-district district analysis, if you can show that it was all partisan, that's okay, but a statewide analysis is as well. But if they buy the district-by-district district analysis but reject the statewide analysis, as the Attorney General's office here is urging them to do, uh, our case will either lose or it'll have to go back for trial because we didn't really offer the proof on a district-by-district district basis. I think we could. I just showed you the maps, uh, and there, that, I just showed you some sample maps. This goes on all around the state. I mean, I, I could go on and on, but I'll leave it for Q&A about other places in the state where there's packing and macking, packing and cracking, depending on how much you're familiar with the geography of the state. But uh, uh, we could, but it'd be quite a trial because you have experts talking about the map. You know, why did they put Portage, Wisconsin in this district and not that district? I mean, a very detailed kind of stuff. Uh, be a long trial is what it amounts to. So look for that uh, in the Supreme Court decision. Now, uh, I haven't talked about uh, the public advocacy projects. The League is very involved nationally in this, as is Common Cause. Uh, the cause of redistricting reform as, as over this five-year period that I've been involved with this, I mean, it's really grown. It's also grown very grassroots-like right here in Wisconsin. The count, something like 40 county boards have passed resolutions saying, 
we need a constitutional amendment that deprives the legislature of the power to draw districts. They obviously have a conflict of interest. We should give the power to draw districts to some kind of nonpartisan commission without going into too many details. So this political movement has grown over the last five years, and I'm not sure where it'll go. I mean, I'm a cynic enough to think the governor and Robin Voss and Scott Fitzgerald aren't going to voluntarily give up their power to draw the districts in 2021 if they're still in power. Uh, but maybe I'm being overly cynical. I, uh, but the movement is definitely there. And my closing thought is simply this. As the public uh, advocacy stuff and the leagues, in the, in, certainly in the vanguard of that, uh, goes on, you might think of our case, which has become now a test case, really, with national implications. If we win, I mean, there'll be suits. There's just suits lined up to file in other states. Lawyers are preparing them and stuff, but they want to see what the Supreme Court says in our case before they finally draft the complaint. And, and they have to hire experts, but they, they want to see what the Supreme Court says so they can tell the experts what kind of report they want and so forth. Uh, but there'll be a lot of litigation in other states. Uh, and you might think that what you have are some entrepreneurs who want to change the law through a Supreme Court decision, and they went around and looked for a fact situation that would be appropriate for bringing that case. That happens in some uh, Supreme Court case, legal entrepreneurship. Uh, there, there's a case pending, the Janus case, the Supreme Court having to do with First Amendment rights of workers not to pay uh, union dues to public employee unions under the First Amendment. I mean, we have that in Wisconsin because of Act 10, but it would make it national under the U.S. Constitution. That was a case where some entrepreneurial law firms had an idea and went around looking for some plaintiffs. This is a case where some people in the Watts Tea Room group had a problem. <laughs> we had a problem. We weren't going to win any elections. What were we going to do? And we couldn't think of a solution other than to bring a test case to the Supreme Court and try to win it. We didn't, know it. We didn't think of any other way to deal with the problem. That's sort of the way law is supposed to work, right? It's supposed to come something somebody uses to try to solve a problem. Probably the last choice, you don't want to bring a case all the way to the Supreme Court to solve a problem, but maybe that's the only way. Sort of the way this case began. It's kind of organic, I call it. I kind of feel good about it. Law is supposed to be working, working the way it's supposed to work. But all that assumes we win. Now, if we lost, lose, well, I won't go into that. But uh, uh, that, that's enough for my lecture. You've been listening to Fair Voting Maps from the view of Gill versus Whitford, the Wisconsin gerrymandering case on how it began, developed, and its current status. The speaker was William Whitford, Professor Emeritus at the UW Law School. The talk took place on April 11, 2018 at the Capitol Lakes Retirement Community in Madison and was sponsored by the League of Women Voters of Dane County. There are study materials with handouts and maps at the League's website at lwvdanecounty.org. To find out what else the League is up to, go to their website at lwvdanecounty.org. The views expressed here are those of the speakers and not necessarily those of the League of Women Voters of Dane County.
Permission to rebroadcast this podcast is granted if credit is given to the League of Women Voters of Dane County and any editing does not alter the speaker's meaning.